You're listening to the Goodbye July podcast, episode number three. I'm honored to have you join me as we close out our two-part mini-series on moving to El Salvador. In last week's episode, we talked about the who, what, when, where, and why, and today we're really going to deep dive into the how. I'll be sharing more details about the home itself, I'll cover the specifics around how we got the money to pay it off in full, and I'll lay out a roadmap for how you can save up a similar amount of money too. Hey, my name is Jessica Tolar, and I'm obsessed with all things passive income, productivity, entrepreneurship, and building a life where you make the rules. I'm a normal girl who took a free money class, asked a corporate executive how she retired early, and used that knowledge to build a seven-figure net worth, quit my nine-to-five, and now run an online business from countries around the world. I teach you the simple but effective secrets to building a life you adore. Think I'm special? No way. If I did it, so can you. Money, mindset, life hacks, hardship, growth, and planning are all topics we discuss here. Think of this as a weekly coffee date with a close girlfriend where you talk about the finance and business knowledge it'll take to make your dreams a reality. So take a seat, get comfortable, and prepare to be challenged and cheered on while you learn. This is the Goodbye July Podcast. This episode of the Goodbye July podcast is sponsored by PeerGrade Supplements. PeerGrade is the all-natural supplement line that I use to get clear-minded, stay energized, feel great, and make every day as effective and efficient as possible. PeerGrade is offering 10% off exclusively for Goodbye July listeners. Just go to PeerGradeSupplements.com and use the code GOODBYEJULY at checkout to get started and get your mind and body back today. All right, let's get into it. So if you're listening to this, you've probably already heard episode number two in which I shared the big news that we've officially closed on a house in El Salvador. And today I'm excited to share more details on how exactly we did it. So I'm going to start off with the biggest piece of the puzzle you're probably wondering about, and that is the finances. So let me start by saying property in El Salvador is much more affordable than it is here in the States. That's not to say it's cheap, but it's a lot more reasonable on your bank account when compared to things here in the U.S. So the property we bought is three miles from one of the main tourist beaches called El Tunco. It's up the mountain headed toward a little town called Tamanique. So if you stand in the right spot on our land, you can actually see the ocean. You can see it more during dry season when the trees lose some of their leaves because then you have an easier time looking through the branches. But during rainy season, when things are super lush and full of leaves, it's a bit harder to see the water. But it's a trade-off because the plants are so gorgeous and healthy during the rainy season. So really, either way, you have a beautiful view. The house itself is a two-story, three-bedroom, three-bath with a kitchen-living room combo and an outdoor hangout area with a couple outdoor showers, an outdoor bathroom, and a little storage closet. They don't really list square footage. They're on the metric system anyway, but I never saw in the listing or in any of the documents an actual measurement of the living space. However, if I had to guess, I'd say it's probably 12 to 1300 square feet. The house itself is great, but what really sold us is the proximity to the beach and all of the spots we like to hang out plus the fact that it came with nearly two acres that back up to a river. So for context, the price we paid for the home and the land came to $105,000. 
So if you've ever bought a house in the U.S. or even researched housing or land prices, you'll see how much less expensive it is in El Salvador. But what I really wanted to get into is how we came up with the $105,000 to pay in cash so we could own the house outright. If you want the short version, it's this. We simply sold a house, profited $223,000, and used that money to buy the house in El Salvador. But I really hope you stick around to hear the long version because that's where the lessons are. So let me just start by reminding you, this is not something that happened overnight. Coming up with this amount of money took time, patience, strategic planning, strategic timing, and you know what I'm about to say, it took investing in assets. Saving this amount of money would have taken us years longer than it did for us to invest in assets, sell those assets, and collect the profits. So let's break it down. If you follow me, you probably know that I've been using the same budget tool since I graduated college in 2012, which means I've been using this tool for 10 years now. It's the first bookmark on my bookmark bar, so it's always top of mind, and it consistently ranks number one on my most recently accessed documents. What I'm trying to say is, I use this budget calculator a lot, and you'll hear me talk about this particular tool many times throughout this episode, so I'll be linking it in the show notes for you. So starting in 2012, I used my budget calculator to keep a close watch on the amount of money I was spending versus bringing in. The number one thing this tool helps me with is I use it to always make sure the amount of money I'm bringing in is higher than the amount of money I'm spending. So that's what I did starting in 2012. I found a job with a salary that I felt was on par with other people my age, with my qualifications, and I made sure to keep my expenses below that. That's the first thing this tool is great for, making sure you're not overspending and that your cash flow stays positive. The next best thing this tool has done for me is it showed me how much money I could save or better yet, invest. So again, this tool shows you how much you're bringing in, how much you're spending, and then it automatically calculates the difference between those numbers, which is the amount you can afford to save or invest each month. So month after month, I watched my expenses, kept them as low as I could, and put the rest of my money toward my 401k because that's what I thought you were supposed to do. So I threw everything I could into my 401k until I had an unexpected car accident that nearly sent my bank account to zero. So if you're not aware, any money you put into your 401k is essentially inaccessible until you're nearly 60 years old. And I say essentially inaccessible because you can access it if you absolutely must, but you're going to pay a hefty penalty fine. So you really, really don't want to touch your 401k until you're about 60, unless it's a critical emergency, which my car incident was not. But the car thing was a good learning for me because it taught me the importance of an emergency fund and it opened my mind up to investments beyond the 401k, which again, I couldn't even access for another 40 years. So that's when I decided I would prioritize building my emergency fund and then I'd look into other investment opportunities outside of the 401k. The generally accepted definition of an emergency fund is three to six months of living expenses, but it can really be whatever you want. Basically, you just need to decide if you suddenly lost all forms of income unexpectedly, how long do you think it would take you to find another source of income? At the time, I was more conservative coming out of my car accident scare, so I decided to save up six months of my living expenses. So you know what I did? I consulted my favorite tool, the budget calculator. I looked at it to get a quick view of what it cost me to survive for a month, and I multiplied that number by six. And that was my emergency fund goal. 
To make sure I stuck to it, I set up a monthly auto draft from my checking account to my savings account. Now, let me take a second to say that I did not stop investing in my 401k completely because my company offered a 4% match. And that just means if I put up to 4% of my monthly paycheck into my 401k, my company would put the same amount of money also into my 401k. Some companies do this as an incentive for you to invest in your retirement fund. So if you're not sure if your company does this, I suggest you ask if they do. Or if you know your company does this and you're not taking advantage of it, you're literally leaving money on the table. So thanks to my budget calculator, I knew that I could afford to save or invest 14% of my monthly paycheck. And prior to my car incident, I'd been putting that full 14% into my 401k. But once I decided that I wanted to prioritize building my emergency fund, I reduced my 401k contribution to 4% so that I could take full advantage of my company match and then for the remaining 10%, I set up a monthly auto draft from my checking account to my savings account. I've since learned that there are better places to keep your emergency fund, but I'll cover that more in depth in another episode because today is about telling the story of the events that led up to the El Salvador house. And the truth is, when I first built my emergency fund, I just kept it in my bank savings account. And there is nothing wrong with that if that's where you'd like to start to. Because I knew my emergency fund goal and how much I could afford to auto-draft to my savings each month, it was pretty simple to calculate how long it would take me to reach my goal, which then told me how long I had to figure out what I wanted to invest in after my emergency fund was complete. Because once the emergency fund was complete, I needed somewhere else for that monthly auto-deposit to go. Around that time, two important things happened. One was that my company offered a free financial class for its employees, and the other was that one of the executives I admired announced she was retiring early. So I did two things. I enrolled in the free financial class, and I still have the workbook from this class to this day. And I set up a meeting with the executive who was retiring early to ask her how she did it. From these two experiences, one lesson bubbled up to the top, and that is the power of investing. From there, I started reading books about investing and became interested in buying a house rather than renting an apartment because I finally understood that paying rent was essentially handing over money I'd never see again, whereas paying a mortgage was putting money into something I could eventually make more money on later. I almost saw a mortgage as a savings account with a super high return rate. Unfortunately, I'd just finished funding my emergency fund and I didn't have a lot of money laying around to put toward a down payment on a house. So I decided to start investing in the stock market. However, I was working full time and had an active social life, so I didn't have a lot of extra time to research my own stocks. I started thinking about this and realized that I wasn't picking my own stocks to invest in for my 401k. My employer had actually worked out a deal with a company called Financial Engines who would invest our money into our 401k for a small fee of $5 per paycheck. So I thought, I wonder if there are companies who do the same thing for other investments outside of 401ks, and there are. After researching a few of them, I decided to invest my money through a company called Elvest. I set up an account, told them how much money I made, how much I could afford to auto deposit with them each month, and set up some different goals, one of which was to buy a house. And through my monthly auto deposits to Elvest, I started saving for my first down payment. Then, in late 2014, I decided to switch employers, and I was very intentional about negotiating a raise, ultimately securing a 17% salary increase. But the key is, I basically pretended I didn't get a raise at all. 
What I did instead is I increased the amount of money I was auto-depositing into Elvest each month as much as I could while keeping my living expenses exactly the same. Doing this accelerated the amount of money I was making in my investments, and I saw my down payment fund grow much more quickly. So that's when the fun part started, and I began to house hunt. And just real quick, I want to mention that in addition to investing, I think that switching employers every few years and negotiating a salary increase is one of the most important things you can do. I'll share more at the end of the episode on how to decide when it's time to switch employers and how to negotiate a raise. Okay, so back to the house hunting. Corey and I were not married or engaged at the time I started looking at houses, so I decided to buy the house on my own. So to start, I went online and found a calculator where I essentially just entered my salary and toggled the different dials until the monthly mortgage payment matched around what I was paying in rent for my apartment. Based on that, it told me the different house values I should look for, as well as an estimated down payment, which really helped solidify the goal I was working toward in my investment account with Elvest. Armed with my house price range, I started looking at homes in my desired area, which was South Austin. Now, this was in early 2015, so the housing market in Austin wasn't nearly as insane as it is now. However, the prices I was seeing suggested that an Austin address was still highly valued. Specifically, what I'm talking about is I looked at a house in South Austin, and then I toured the exact same house about three miles south in Buda, which, if you're not familiar with the Austin area, it's just the next little town bordering up to the south end of Austin. The house with the Austin address was $100,000 more expensive than the same house with the Buda address. That just seemed silly to me, so I ended up buying the house three miles south in Buda. At the time, I couldn't keep up with the resale market. Even then, houses were selling within a few days of being on the market, so I ended up buying a new build in a neighborhood called Sunfield in Buda. The house price was $217,000 for a 1,500-square-foot single story on a small lot. That was in July of 2015 when I signed the documents, and after all was said and done, I used my Elvest investment account to pay the $10,000 to cover the down payment and all of the closing costs. The house was built, we moved in right after Corey's birthday in December of 2015, and we lived there until the summer of 2019. I chose a fixed rate mortgage to make sure the monthly payment didn't vary. So for the three and a half years we lived there, our monthly payment was around $1,700, give or take a bit for escrow. During that time, just like always, I consulted my budget calculator every single month to make sure our living expenses stayed well below our income and we put everything that was left over into Elvest. Also in 2017, Corey started dabbling in cryptocurrency, which was kept separate from our investments in Elvest, and we set a specific budget for him to use to play with because we did not count on crypto as our sole investment. In 2018, Corey quit his 9-to-5 and started his own supplement business, and we used some of the money from Elvest to put toward buying an initial round of inventory, which he then sold for a profit. In 2019, I decided to change employers again, and again, I was very intentional about negotiating a raise, this time securing a 33% salary increase, which is almost double what I negotiated the first time. This suggests that as you start doing this and getting more comfortable doing it, you'll get better and better each time you make the ask. And if you know me, this is not my strong suit. I am not confident at asking for things that I need. So trust me, if I can do it, so can you. And each time you do it, you'll get better. Something else that happened in 2019 is my parents decided to retire and they decided to downsize, which meant putting my childhood home on the market. 
This felt very emotional for me, so Corey and I started talking about the possibility of buying the house for my parents. And at that point, we were then faced with the decision of whether we should sell our current home in Buda. We had been watching the value of our home in Buda, and by 2019, it had only increased in value by about fifteen dollars to $30,000. But Austin was starting to grow even more rapidly, so we truly felt that it was worth holding on to because eventually we knew we'd make a better profit on it. By then we were married, so we prepared to go in on this next house together, but unfortunately, when applying for the loan, we learned that because Corey had not been in business for two years yet, they wouldn't consider his income, which really stunk because he worked incredibly hard that first year and did better than we expected since it normally takes most businesses two years to become profitable, but he did it in one. But luckily, one of the perks of this deal was that we were buying from family, so things on that side of the deal were a bit more flexible. What ended up happening is I went in on the loan with only my salary and the highest loan that I could be approved for was 400000 So that's the price my parents sold us the house at, even though it was slightly below the appraised value. But luckily that price point allowed my parents to pay off their new home in full and have a bit left over and allowed me to be approved for the loan at my new salary level. So we used the money that had been growing in our Elvis account to put down $20,000 to cover the down payment and closing costs, and we got busy moving in and deciding what exactly we were going to do to generate enough money to cover the costs of two mortgages. A couple of our good friends had been using their home as an Airbnb in a town nearby, and it seemed like they were making decent money, so we decided to give it a shot. And by the end of August of 2019, we had our first guests. We typically charged about $80 per night, but we'd increase the price for big events like Austin City Limits or South by Southwest, which are both big music festivals here in Austin. Based on occupancy and the price point, we did not have enough money to hire a company to run our Airbnb for us, so Corey and I managed the communication with the guests, the house upkeep, and our least favorite thing, the cleaning. Every time a guest checked out, we'd go over, wash four beds worth of sheets, clean you don't even want to know what out of all the bathrooms, sweep, vacuum, remake the beds, and make sure the trash was out. I'm glad we had the experience because we learned a lot, but it was exhausting and stressful, and in the end, we ended up losing money. We came really close to breaking even, and it covered the mortgage, but once you added in all the bills, the HOA fees, the insurance, and our time and effort, we definitely lost money. Plus, just the unexpected nature of Airbnb is tough. I remember waking up the morning of a holiday to a last-minute booking and having to rush over to clean before they arrived. We also did it once before the funeral of a dear friend. It's just not how you want to spend your time. So we were very, very grateful in February of 2020 when we signed on our first long-term tenants who moved in March 15th of 2020, literally days before the pandemic lockdown started. We got incredibly lucky with this because Airbnb bookings essentially came screeching to a halt. We had long-term tenants from March 2020 until March 2022, and for the most part, it went super smoothly. It was definitely much, much easier than running an Airbnb. Plus, the income was consistent, and we rarely had to go to the house at all. During this time, I left my corporate tech job to pursue this passion project full-time. It was a calculated risk, but one I was willing to take, and I'm so glad I did. Financially, I felt good about taking the leap of leaving my paycheck mainly because of our investments. At the time, we had two houses that were appreciating in value, and the mortgage of one of those houses was being paid for by our long-term tenants, which meant that we only had to cover the mortgage of the home we were living in. We had investments in Elvest that had grown nicely over the years and were continuing to grow. 
Our cryptocurrency investments were also growing, although they were and are more volatile than what we've seen in the stock market. And Corey's supplement business was also bringing in some money. And on top of all of that, we still had an emergency fund that meant if all sources of our income stopped unexpectedly, we'd be okay for six full months. So I started spending my time helping organize some things on the back end of the supplement business. We made some updates to our rental house, and we did a bunch of traveling to El Salvador, which brings us to the spring of 2022. After an unexpected flood in our rental home in the fall of 2021 that took a lot of time to fix and caused a lot of stress, we started playing with the idea of selling the home and looking for other investments. And that's when we learned about a tax rule that's informally called the two of the last five years rule. And this rule states that if you lived in the house as your primary residence for two of the last five years, you can sell that home and collect the profits without paying the hefty capital gains tax. We looked at the calendar and realized we'd only qualify for that if we sold the house by August. So we decided to pull the trigger. Our tenant's lease was up in March of 2022, which felt like perfect timing for us to make any other updates needed and get the house on the market by the summer. So we worked like dogs on that house every single day for a full month and got it listed and sold by April. And I am so glad that we held on to it because in that time, the house appreciated well beyond that fifteen dollars to $30,000 range we were seeing back in 2019 when we first considered selling it. So that little house that we originally bought for $217,000 was sold for $440,000, leaving us with a profit of $223,000 minus realtor fees and other closing costs. So in over just six years, we profited $223,000 and financially speaking, all we really had to do was cover the initial $10,000 fee up front and then the $1,700 monthly mortgage payment for the first three years that we lived in the home as our primary residence. Otherwise, our tenants were paying our mortgage for us, which freed up our money that we had previously been using to pay that mortgage, meaning we could invest that money in other things while we gained equity on that home. So while the stock market is the easiest asset to start investing in, and that's what I use to help save up for a down payment, in my own personal experience, real estate has been my favorite and where we've seen the largest growth. It's also fun because you have so many options of what to do with real estate and how to make money on it, and you physically have the asset. Like It's something you can see and touch and feel, which isn't the case with some of the other assets like stocks. Speaking of real estate, many people have been asking us if we're going to sell the house we're currently living in in Austin, and the answer is no. So similar to what we did with our first house, we're going to leverage this asset to produce cash flow. Lately, we've been very busy cleaning it out and redecorating as we prepare to put it on Airbnb, but this time we'll have a company managing it for us. So again, the idea here is that we'll have other people paying our mortgage on our behalf. And in this case, we're aiming to make more money than what our mortgage requires each month. So we can have extra cash at the end of the month to use for our living expenses in El Salvador. And of course, to put into other investments. The key is intentionally putting money into things that can then produce you more money. So that is the full story of how we secured the funds to buy the home in El Salvador. But here's the lesson. This did not happen overnight. It took me some time to find my groove when it came to monthly saving and investing through a company I trusted. And it took some time for those investments to grow to a point where I could afford that initial down payment. And it took even more time to research homes in my budget and how to turn the home I bought into an investment that gained cash flow beyond just building equity. 
Like anything in life, it took some work. If this makes you feel overwhelmed and discouraged, let me help you reframe your mind because the good news is this. You are not alone. Most of us start around the same place. I know we all grew up in different life circumstances, but what I mean is that if you're listening to this, chances are your family isn't super ultra wealthy and at some point, either now or soon, you'll be responsible for paying for your own life and your own needs. And accomplishing that can typically be done by following the roadmap I laid out for you today. So I'm going to summarize it here, and then I'll direct you to more resources where you can dive deeper into each of the main areas, which are these. Number one, make sure you know how much money you're making versus how much you're spending. Number two, if you are making more than you're spending, start investing the difference. But if you're spending more than you're making, you'll either need to spend less money or make more money. And if you want to make more money, typically the path of least resistance would be to ask for a raise or find another job with a higher pay rate. And number three, once you start making more than you're spending, set up an auto draft to build up your emergency fund to cover three to six months of your living expenses. And once that's done, reroute your auto draft to an investment account like I did with Elvest. Regardless of where you're at in this journey, I have free resources that can help you master whatever step you're currently on so you can move on to the next one. I'll link to all of these in the show notes. If you're confused about how much money you're bringing in versus spending, take a look at my free monthly budget calculator. It's the one you've heard most about during this episode. If you're already making more than you're spending, that's fantastic because you are officially ready to set up an auto draft to build up your emergency fund and then your investments later. Just subtract the amount you're spending each month from the amount you're making each month and set up a monthly auto transfer for that amount from your checking to your savings account until you have three to six months worth of your living expenses saved up and then switch that auto deposit to go toward an investment account instead of your savings account. If you are spending more than you're making, you'll need to do one of two things. You either need to reduce your spending or you need to increase your income. Generally, I tell people if the difference is pretty small, you can probably get by with cutting some expenses, but if the difference is larger, you're likely going to need to make more money, but ideally you'll do both. So go check out my Make More Money Starter Kit for specific instructions on the strategies I use to first secure a 17% salary increase and then a 33% salary increase. And also take a look at the Money Saving Cheat Sheet for 30 practical ideas on how to naturally incorporate saving into your life. You can access all of these resources in the show notes at jessicatolar.com slash 003. Remember, the worst thing you can do is take no action at all. Just try taking one step today to move toward the place where you're auto-investing each month. And honestly, I think the secret is just getting organized, which the budget calculator specifically can really help you do. You can do this. It just takes small daily decisions and actions mixed with a large dose of patience and persistence, but it all adds up to ultimately becoming life-changing. So take your first step today and check out the free resources at jessicatoller.com slash 003. Thank you so much for joining me today as I shared the more in-depth behind-the-scenes details of our next big adventure. I cannot wait to share more with you as the story continues to unfold. Be sure to hit subscribe, rate the show, and tune in next week for another episode as we continue discussing empowerment through personal finance. Thank you again for tuning in, and until next time, work less, live more, and keep on chasing your wildest dreams.
Congratulations on finishing another episode of the Goodbye July podcast. If you want more, head over to jessicatolar.com slash podcast for show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode. Don't forget to rate the show, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode, and share it with a friend. I believe in a world where we're all financially free, so let's help each other get there. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Goodbye July podcast.